Well, let's take out your Bible and let's turn to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. Today we're going to be looking at uh, or zeroing in on uh, verses 16 through 30. I'm going to actually read again, though, starting at verse 1, uh, just for the sake of context. So John chapter 4, starting in verse 1, and we will read through verse 30. And again, this is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Pay careful attention then to reading of it. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, weird as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that the Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. 
Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, What do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jug and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. The grass withers, the flower falls, the word of our God remains forever. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reading of your word. We ask, O God, now that you would uh, give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Be with this your servant, that the words that are spoken here would be your words, would be true words, would be showing us Christ, that we may magnify him, that we may glory in our Savior Jesus. Help us to understand this passage. Help us to apply it to our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the course of the past 30 years or so, uh, the evangelical church has experienced what some have called the worship wars. Debates over musical styles, you know, what instruments should be used or not used, whether you should have a worship band or not. All of these things have been sort of part of that debate. And even some Reformed churches have not been immune to this. Now, much of the debate was about what sort of worship experience would most effectively gather the largest amount of people into the church. What would give the most pleasing experience? And so music was chosen with the taste of contemporary people in mind. And the message was often watered down and made more practical, as it were. And the service as a whole was shortened so as not to offend the sensibilities of busy modern families. Debates ensued between traditionalists who wanted to maintain the old way of doing things and those who wanted to transform the worship experience. The problem is that these debates and the subsequent changes which come about from them were not asking the right questions. The question is not about what is the most comfortable worship experience or what will attract the most people, what is the most convenient. It's also not about, well, you know, this is what we've always done and so we should always do it this way. The question is what sort of worship is pleasing to God? What is the worship that is pleasing to God? Has God in His Word regulated worship in some fashion? What kind of worship and what kind of worshipers does the Father desire? Now in our text today, we see the question from the Samaritan woman about the place of worship. Is it on this mountain? Is it on that mountain? And Jesus responds to her that the time was coming and was now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. 
Now, if this is how true worshipers are to worship, then should we ask the question, what is it to worship in spirit and truth? Isn't that the question we should ask? What is it to worship in spirit and truth? It seems to me that this is the most pressing question when it comes to worship. Worship that is pleasing to the Creator and Sustainer of all things. It's not a question then of form, but of substance. Now, to reorient ourselves again to our text, we saw last week that Jesus was traveling from Judea in the south to Galilee in the north, and he passed through Samaria and came to a town called Sychar, into a well which Jacob, one of the patriarchs, had dug. It is at this well where he meets a woman. A woman who had come in the middle of the day to fetch water. And we pointed out last, last time how unusual it was for a woman to come to the well at that hour, at noon, and to also come alone. And Jesus engages in conversation with her. He asks her for a drink of water. But then the discussion turns to living water. Starting in verse 13, he says, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So Jesus is here speaking about spiritual life. He's offering the transforming spirit who will bring a person to a place of of eternal life. And God himself is the fountain of life. And Jesus is offering a life which satisfies, unlike the life of this world. To say the least, the woman is intrigued. Though she does not yet understand what Jesus is referring to. And so she asks... For this water. She says, give me some of this water. So essentially, so I don't have to keep coming to this well. I would like some of this this water, this living water. And so to this, Jesus responds. And this is where we are picking up in the narrative. In verse 16, he says this. Go, call your husband and come here. Now, the question you might ask is, What is the connection between the woman asking for the living water, which Jesus had offered, and then his response of, go get your husband? This is not simply an abrupt change of subject. Nor is it the case that Jesus had you know, given up on her understanding of what he is speaking. You know, he's not saying, like, you, you, you poor woman, you clearly don't understand what I'm talking about. Go get your husband so maybe I'll have better luck with him. That's not what he's saying. Now Jesus is using his divine knowledge of her messy past and her sinful present to help her come to grips with the nature of the gift of which he was offering her. Living water, eternal life. She desires the living water. Her her thirst for this water is deep indeed. And Jesus is showing her how deep it is by confronting her with her sin. Jesus is getting to the heart of the matter, the sin in her life. 
Now the woman responds truly that she has no husband. In other words, she's not married. And so Jesus says, you're right in saying this. I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you are now with is not your husband. What you've said is true. So the statement, um, this statement would have come as a shock to the woman. I mean, for, for his response to say, oh, yeah, you are right about that. In fact, you've had five of those, but you're, not actually, you're actually with somebody now who's not even your husband. So she must ask herself, how does this stranger who I just met at the well know this? How does he know this? How does he know this about me? How does he know about my messy past? How does he know what I'm doing now in my private life? Jesus demonstrates the knowledge of her past and present. He he knows her in a way that he had similarly known Nathaniel in John chapter 1 and verse 47. Jesus here commends the Samaritan woman for her honesty. She, she has answered truly that she had no husband presently, but it is not that she hasn't been married. And Jesus points out her five husbands. Now, we don't know. We don't know whether that she's been a widow five times over or whether she's been divorced five times or some combination of those things. Her answer to Jesus, no doubt, has given, was given to try and avoid any further discussion of what was probably a, a rather sensitive part of her life. But Jesus exposes her. He exposes the truth. The five men that she has been married to were either deceased or perhaps had divorced her. And the one that she's now sleeping with was not her husband. Any legal sense of the word, there's no such thing as common law marriage in those days. And so though Jesus commends her for her honesty, he also, in the most gentle, in the most gentle terms, rebukes her. Her life has been laid bare before her. In fact, he doesn't really need to say much more than what he says. She understands what he's getting at. At a minimum, she is presently living in sin. So it's possible that those five husbands had each divorced her because of her infidelity. It's not clear in the passage. We don't really know that for a fact. We do know that she is something of a pariah in the community because, again, she came to the water to the well alone, and so she's living. She's she's been known. She's known as being in sin. Now, attempts to try and excuse her lifestyle or to explain it away to make her somehow changes so that she's a victim. Though popular in our present day, is of little use. To do that ignores the context here. It ends up removing the purpose in this passage. Jesus is giving here a master class on how to confront sin. Notice that Jesus confronts her sin head on, but with great gentleness. Exposes her heart without embarrassing her unnecessarily. He cuts her to the heart, yet he does not crush her. He mentions the five husbands. He doesn't say anything about whether she had infidelity or not. And if if she did, she knew what was true. He didn't need to say more 
than he said. He doesn't, he doesn't give all the messy details. I, I think there's something we can learn there as we, as we confront others in their sin. We don't need to unnecessarily embarrass people. We don't need to say, here's all the messy details for you. We, you, you can say what needs to be said. People know what you're speaking of. We don't need to crush people. The Samaritan woman knows the reality. She's been confronted with it. Her sin is before her. And our Lord's purpose in this is to seek her repentance. For indeed, she desires that living water which he supplies. Now again, in verse 19, it seems like the subject changes. But again, is it actually changing? The woman acknowledges that everything that Jesus has said is true. In fact, we can see this in her statement that, she, that he must be some kind of prophet. You see, in, in verse 19, you know, I, I perceive you're a prophet. You seem to know things about me. How else could he know these things unless he was a gifted person such as a prophet? And so she understands and she acknowledges that Jesus has spoken, spoken truly concerning her. Some commentators, though, question um, whether her, her question is some sort of a distraction. You know, perhaps she's trying to change the subject, right? Here's this very painful part of her life. And so maybe, maybe if we talk about theology, you know, that's a, a way to you know, sort of talk about something that's uh, not as personal. In fact, it is true that sometimes the finer points of theology are easier to talk about than the painful truths of our life. Isn't it? Our orthodoxy, though, must lead to orthopraxy. Good doctrine ought to have an impact on how we live. That doctrine that we want to talk about with people, maybe distract them from our lives, needs to apply to our lives. Something informative there for us. Now, what our motives are is, is not really clear. It may simply be that she already was suspicious. She's already suspicious that she's speaking to someone of great significance. She's maybe wondering already, could this possibly be the Messiah? At the very least, she has discovered that he's a prophet. He's aware of things that how could he be aware of? And so this... This prompts her to raise a disputed, a disputed point of theology between Jews and Samaritans. Namely, what was the appropriate place of worship? And by the way, this question is pertinent, isn't it? To her life. Remember, the Samaritan woman had been living far away from God and God's uh, law. She had been married five times. Again, we don't know the root cause of that. But she is currently living in great sin. She's sleeping with a man who is not her own husband, and thus she's living as a prostitute would. If she is to repent of that sin, and if she is to be made right before a holy God, then she also wants to know well, where am I supposed to worship that God? This is an important question for her. Isn't her question really getting to the heart of every sinner? The the concern that we ought to have? How must I now relate to this God who has made me and saved me? And so far from being a change of subject, really, this is very much on point. 
The Samaritans worshipped what uh, the woman here refers to as this mountain. That is Mount Gerizim. This is near to where they were, that village that Jesus had, had gone to in Samaria. This is, this is the place where the Samaritan shrine had been located. And at one time, the Samaritans had built a temple on that mountain. Now the Jews, on the other hand, they worshipped in Jerusalem. And so when, she, when the woman refers to our fathers, she's actually speaking of Abraham and Jacob. Both of them had built an altar at Shechem. You might remember that in our study uh, in Genesis. They built a, an altar at Shechem. This is near Mount Gerizim. And it was there that the, shout, that the blessings were to be shouted out to the covenant people. We, we read about that in Deuteronomy a few minutes ago. In the Samaritan version of the scriptures, after the Ten Commandments, uh, there are words which are similar to those found in Deuteronomy chapter 27, which calls for the people to set up stones with the, the commandments on them on Mount Ebal. Mount Ebal overlooks Mount Gerizim. And so it's no wonder that the Samaritans built their temple at Gerizim, because, and they insisted that worship was to be done there, particularly because the Samaritans only accepted the first five books of the Bible. They didn't have the rest of the Old Testament. They didn't accept that as part of Scripture. And so that location is so significant for them. Uh, as, as mentioned, there had been a temple there. That temple, though, was destroyed uh, by the Maccabean ruler John uh, Hyrcanus around 128 B.C. And so that temple was no more, yet they still continued to worship on that mountain. And so the Samaritans held competing religious claims from those of the Jews. The Jews insisted that proper worship was offered in Jerusalem. This is the place where David had established his kingly throne, where Solomon had built the temple. And so the question that the woman asks is simply this, who's right? If I'm to worship this God, you know, uh, then where am I supposed to do this at? Now, Jesus' response, first of all, is to point out that time was coming when neither location, neither Jerusalem, nor Mount Gerizim will be the central and definitive location for worship. In fact, the claim of both places is to become obsolete. Nevertheless, salvation had come through the Jews and not through the Samaritans. And so although the claim of the Jews was technically correct, That point has become moot. Because as Jesus explains, the nature of worship has changed. True worship of the Father is in spirit and truth. And so there's no no need to continue a debate on the relative merits of worshiping in this place or worshiping in that place. These competing locations of God's presence are to be replaced by something far greater for those who worship the Father. Now notice that Jesus does not, strictly speaking, make any direct statement about who is right, whether it's the Jews or the Samaritans, though he does so indirectly. He said, that is, he says you, that is you Samaritans, he says you worship what you do not know. And he says we, that is, speaking about the Jews, we worship that which we know. For salvation is from the Jews. Now, again, I've already mentioned that the Samaritans uh, rejected a large portion of the Old Testament. 
And so they had gaps. They had huge gaps in the understanding of God's character and God's revelation of himself. The Samaritans were worshiping the one true God, but they really didn't know him. And they didn't know him because they lacked full knowledge of him. They lacked the knowledge of God as he's revealed himself in all all of Scripture. By contrast, for the Jews, it can be said at the very least that they knew the object of their worship. They stood in the stream of God's revelation. They knew the one that they worshipped for salvation is from the Jews. That is to say that all of redemptive history had run through the Jews. God had revealed himself through that people. Now, of course, this this last statement in verse 22 does not mean that all the Jews were saved. In fact, the gospel states, uh, the the gospel would be opposed to such an idea as that. They're not not all saved. That's not the point. It's it's a redemptive history had run through them. The Jews were the vehicle of God's revelation. They were the vehicle of God's salvation. The history of redemption, of God's rescuing His people, ran through the nation of Israel. It is from the Jews that the Redeemer would come. As it says in Psalm 76.1, In Judah God is known, His name is great in Israel. The Jews had been appointed by God to carry the oracles of God. They had been the instruments of God to bring the message of His salvation, of His redemption. It was through the Jews that He had worked and acted, bringing His revelation, ultimately coming in the coming of the Son of God Himself, Jesus Christ. Though they had the privilege of being the conduit of God's revelation, the hour had come. The eschatological age has dawned, which the scriptures themselves point to. What had been foreshadowed had now become a reality. The hour is coming, is in fact now here, it says, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. It's worth noting that uh, John in his gospel uses the hour to speak of the death, resurrection, and exaltation of Jesus Christ. The coming of Jesus ushers in this new era, this new era of worship, a worship which is not tied to a geographic place, but in spirit and in truth. In this new hour, this is how true worshipers will worship. Now now we come to this question, what is meant by spirit and truth? This is the central question which we are seeking now to answer. And the context helps us answer that question. First of all, verse 24 says that God is spirit. God is spirit. He is spiritual. He is not like man who has a body and spirit. Offering spiritual worship is not about whether or not the Holy Spirit has decided to make an appearance at your church service. Many Christians speak of worship in such a way. They'll say, well, you know, the Spirit, the Spirit was really there today. Or they'll say, there, the Spirit was not at work here today. If true worship of God is occurring among Christians, then the Holy Spirit must be there. 
spiritual worship is not subjective, it's objective. God is present with His people, if they're in fact His people. Jesus here is speaking of the need for spiritual worship, which is rooted in the very being of God. God is spirit. And unlike you and me who require location, right? You, you and I can't be in multiple places at one time. You, you have a place you must be. God is not like this. God does not require place because, again, He is spirit. God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. You and I are not infinite in our being. Our being does not allow us to be everywhere at once. You and I occupy time and space. We have flesh. We occupy a temporal location. Again, God is not like this. He does not have a body like men because He is spirit. And so when Jesus says that true worshipers worship the Father in spirit, He is speaking of an attribute of God. Just as the Scriptures speak of God as light or God as love. These are ways in which God has presented Himself. God is spirit. And so, in order to relate to spirit, we must have spirit and do so spiritually. This is, by the way, the same sort of thing which Jesus had been laboring to try to explain to Nicodemus. Remember, he said, you know, I I have to speak to you in earthly terms, and you're not really understanding it. You know, I want to talk to you about heavenly things. How can I speak to you about heavenly things? You don't even understand earthly things. Jesus is talking about spiritual realities. Previously, God had given earthly ways of relating to him provisionally. This is the temple, sacrifices, priests. Those were, those were provisional ways in which God was relating to people, but true worship was to come spiritually. To worship the Lord who is the divine, life-giving creator, we must know Him spiritually. Because those things from before were but a shadow of what was to come. The substance has come. Christ has come. He's on the scene. But we, we can't know God unless He reveals Himself. And the Lord has revealed Himself. He's revealed Himself in the Word, the Scriptures. Because the Scriptures are the revelation of God Himself. And the Word has taken on flesh. The, the, the means of that spiritual worship is standing before the woman. is Jesus Himself. Again, the Samaritans worshipped what they did not know because they did not have the, full, the fullness of God's self-disclosure. But now, now the Word has taken on flesh, and the shadow must make way for the reality. And He can be truly known by people, because those people have been born from above. They've been born again by the Spirit. Again, this is what Jesus was explaining to Nicodemus. In fact, as Jesus taught before, no one can see the kingdom unless they have been born from above. This is giving of the Spirit 
which comes through the work of the one who is the truth, whose glory is made known by the way of the cross, his, his death and his resurrection. The one who pours out his spirit, the one who is called the spirit of truth. And so this takes us now to the second part of the phrase, spirit and truth, knowing God and worshiping God come by knowing Jesus Christ who is himself the embodiment of truth and who himself pours out his spirit. So true worshipers of God must be those who've experienced spiritual rebirth. And so it's not about showing up to the right place. It's not about showing up uh, with a sacrifice, offering a, a sacrifice. It's not about having pleasing music or emotional manipulation or some sort of outward manifestation. It's about knowing God. It's about knowing Him. It's about knowing God as He has revealed Himself in His Word and by His Spirit, which are themselves gifts given to us. This is why Paul says in Ephesians, he writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. As believers in Jesus Christ, we have been given the gift of eternal life. But it's not just living forever that's the gift. Sometimes we we sort of truncate the gospel away. Well, you get to live forever. Well, listen, even unbelievers will do that. Of course, they will do so in in a less pleasant state. It's having true eternal life. It is having God Himself. God is the gift. Relating to God is the gift you get. To know God. To be known by Him. So true worship then is not mere outward conformity. It's inward transformation by the Spirit. We worship in Spirit and truth. These are the two inseparable characteristics which govern true worship of God. True worship must be God-centered. And that is only possible by the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is why... This is why the reading and especially the preaching of the Word are so central to worship. Because we must know God. We must know Him as He has revealed Himself. We must know Jesus Christ, the Savior and Redeemer. Now how much the woman understood of Jesus' statement is is not known. Though evidently she catches something of the messianic implications of His words. And so she, she replies, in effect that these questions of worship will be sorted out when the Messiah comes. She says in verse 25, I know that the Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. And you see again, John explaining for his, his Gentile readers. When he comes, she says, he will tell us all things. And so when the Messiah, which incidentally, uh, this was a Jewish term, uh, typically the Samaritans referred to uh, Teheb, Uh, the restorer. She actually uses the Jewish term here. So when the Messiah comes, he will teach everything that needs to be known. When he comes, he's going to sort it all out. And so, you know, I don't need to worry too much about it. 
Now this is a more of a, a typical Samaritan expression than a Jewish one. The Jews did not conceive of the Messiah as merely a teacher who sort of sorts everything out. But the Samaritans saw him as the ultimate teacher and prophet. And so she expresses that the answer to her own question will eventually be sorted out by the Messiah when he comes. But Jesus will far surpass both Jewish and Samaritan expectations. He will do more than sort out theological disputes. He is the God, he is God come in the flesh, the Savior and Redeemer. And Jesus had spoken to the woman at the well about matters which pertain to the end of all things. This is uh, what is meant by the term eschatological, which was used earlier. The end of all things. He had spoken with her, with her with great authority. He knew the intimate details of her life. And she had insisted that the promise would, one would come and he would make all things plain. He would, he would explain everything. Her words, though, reveal that perhaps she's beginning to suspect that which is true. She voices her confession of which uh, she hoped for, perhaps, to see how he might respond. And so, verse 26, Jesus does respond. He says to her, I who speak to you am he. When the Messiah comes, he will reveal all things. Jesus says, the one you're speaking with is he. This one who had sat by the well and asked her for a drink of water. The one who knew all of her messy past, her sins of the present. The one who spoke of living water, the one who spoke of worshiping in spirit and in truth, was none other than the promised Messiah himself. The the expected restorer, who indeed could provide living water to restore man's soul, was here. Here, we see one of the rare times when Jesus gives a clear and definitive disclosure of himself. And so early, really, in John's Gospel. And notice, though, he does this not with a Jew, but with a Samaritan woman. He doesn't do this with his own people. When Jesus spoke these words, revealing that he is the Messiah, what excitement must have filled her? This is him! This is the one. The one. He really does offer living water. But it is at this point that their conversation is interrupted. As the disciples return from the nearby village. In a way, you mean as a reader, you, know, you, you feel like you're at the edge of your seat. And like, oh man, these people came and sort of interrupted, right? It's, it's like the disciples come bumbling in like, what's going on here, right? I don't, maybe it's just me as I read it, I don't know. But they come, and, and they're surprised. They, 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 see her, he, they see Jesus speaking with this woman, which probably reflects something of their, of their cultural prejudices of the day. Uh, many of the Jews thought that, that for a rabbi to speak to a woman, even to his own wife, was a waste of time. Some rabbis even went so far as to suggest that to provide their daughters with a knowledge of the Torah was just as wrong as encouraging them to be prostitutes. And here, Jesus is essentially speaking to what amounts to a prostitute. I think um, Jesus has a sense of humor in these things. Now, I'm not saying, of course, that this was necessarily the disciples' attitude, but rather, this reflects on the attitudes present among the Jews of that day. For a Jewish teacher to interact with a woman was shocking, to say the least. 
But again, Jesus is not held hostage to the sexism and racism of his own day. Jesus came to save sinners, women and men alike, Jew and Gentile alike. Notice that none of the disciples say a word. They're surprised, but they don't speak in any way. But for the woman's part, we read this. She left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, verse 29, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Here's this dear woman who had come to to the well to fetch water. She had come in the heat of the day because she needed water. And what she receives is living water. And in her greatest excitement, and perhaps with great haste, she leaves that water jug behind, and she runs back to the village. Now this is sort of fitting, isn't it? She's left behind the old thing, because she's now received the new. And with such a great excitement... The outcast of the community goes into the town. She goes to all the people with great joy in her heart. Come and see the man who told me all about me. The one who actually knows my heart. The one who has revealed all there is to know about me. The one who has gotten to the core of me. She's eager for the townspeople to, to know. She bears witness to them that these people, by the way, that she had previously avoided, now she's bearing witness to. Jesus' knowledge of her personal life had led her to the conclusion that he was a prophet, but the subsequent conversation convinced her that this was the prophet. This was the Messiah. This was the one who had been promised all along. And if he knows all, all, all about her, what else might he know. Her testimony of Christ to the town caused many of them to come out and see for themselves. So here she is, she's bearing witness, and the people come out of the town. And later in verse 35, the disciples are told to lift up their eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. As the people are coming out of the town, they're coming to hear the gospel that many would believe. We'll have more on that next time. Another little bit of maybe irony is the disciples had been in town buying food. Nobody came from them. They came from this woman who was known for her sin. The coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, changes or had changed the nature of worship. No longer was it about a particular place. If anything, that was provisional. The focus, though, has always been on a person. God is spirit, and we worship in spirit and truth. The point, then, as we think about our own worship, is to understand that we must relate to God as He is, and in the way that He wants us to. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Rome, exhorted them, quote, "...present your bodies as a living sacrifice." holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He told the the Colossian church that the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. Our relating to God in spirit 
relates to our heart and soul being attuned to Him by knowing God, by knowing His Word. It's not about what, just, what happens on just Sundays. It's what happens every single day in your life. This is, this is the gathering of God's people in corporate worship. But what do we do? What do you do with the rest of your life? Is, are you, are, is all of your life presenting your body as a living sacrifice before the Lord? Do you know God and are known by Him? Are you seeking to please Him in all of your life? Because the gospel impacts everything. Not just what you do one day a week. It affects everything you do every single day as you breathe on this, in this life. And, of course, what is to come as well. The Lord, in His Word, wants us to live lives of repentance, of seeking Him, of knowing His will, of obedience to Him, of serving one another. And so as we gather together, we sing, we pray, we hear the Word, we do all of this with hearts of gratitude. Because every single day matters to the Lord. Are we worshiping in spirit and truth? Are you seeking to know the Lord in His Word? Let's pray together. Gracious God, Heavenly Father, we are grateful to You for Your Word. We thank You, Father, as we read that You were pleased to offer living water to this woman who was in great sin. We are thankful that You offered living water to us. We pray, Father, for those who may be among us who don't have this living water, who don't have eternal life, who don't know Jesus Christ as their Savior. We pray, O oh God, that even today, as, th- as they've heard that even the most vile of sinners can be saved, that, they, that, that no one is beyond salvation. Living water is offered even now. May we be those who drink deeply of it. May we be those who seek to be the worshipers who please the Father, worshiping in spirit and truth, knowing Jesus Christ, trusting and resting in Him for our salvation. We pray you be pleased to change hearts and help each of us who know Christ to know Him in deeper ways, to continually trust in Him, not only today, but every single day, growing in, his, in the knowledge of Him. We thank You, O God. We ask all of these in the name of our Savior, even Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.